Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hello, and welcome to the Westside Investors Network. This year, we're launching a new segment on the show, The Deal Deep Dive. These are mini episodes where our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've participated in. We will go deep on all aspects of the deal, from finding it to making the offer, due diligence, and more. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and further your investing journey. All right, Stephen and Mark, thanks for joining Chris and I today. I'll let you guys go ahead and introduce yourself. Stephen, if you want to start. Yeah, my name is Stephen McAdoo. I am a multifamily broker here in Jacksonville, Florida with Franklin Street. Focus on B and C deals, anywhere from you know 10 units to 200 units and everything in between. Been a broker for about three years now. And prior to that, I was working in commercial real estate for developer. And in the beginning of my career, I started actually in accounting and got my CPA license and started my, that was you know the beginning of my career path. But for the last, you know, eight years or so, I've been in the commercial real estate space and now working as a, you know, multifamily broker. So born and raised in Jacksonville. So a lot of local market knowledge and yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Mark? Yeah, just real quick. What's wrong, Stephen? The CPA gig wasn't sexy enough for you. Or <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, somebody told me I made a big. I was making a big mistake. I kind of thought it was like a rude thing to say at the time, but I, I should have took their advice because they were spot on. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So Mark Hassan, I'm the owner and broker, broker of Spectrum Realty Services here in Jacksonville, Florida. Like Stephen, born and raised, so I've got deep roots here in Jacksonville. Kind of came up the same way, started in development, 08 hit, couldn't sell some projects we had, started renting them out, managing them, and kind of like the reoccurring income of property management in between development deals, still do development deals, but have a full service property management brokerage here in town. We do everything from residential, multifamily to associations and commercial property. So yeah, excited to be on the call with you guys. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Of course... We've got Trent on the call, and then I'm Chris Shepard, principal at Uptown Syndication. And Mark, it's so funny to hear, you know, property managers' stories of how they got into it. And yours is actually kind of similar to ours because we bought homes. And then essentially, when we quit our jobs, we're like, oh, we can't get loans anymore. So we had to figure (laughs) out how to get income and cash flow so that we could get more loans. That's how we became property managers. I know. Well, Stephen, I'm really excited to chat about this deal in San Marco. Yeah. Do you want to kind of give us a little bit of background on essentially the opportunity and the location and you know how kind of the San Marco location is different than some of the other areas in town? 
Yeah, yeah. And just to confirm, this is actually the Riverside area, but you're not, the, the areas are very similar in nature. So, and, and they're not very far away. So, this is actually the Riverside Historic District, but San Marco is similar in that uh, a lot of the properties are, you know, 100 years old and historic in nature. So, it's a very similar profile. Okay. But- but I'll tell you a little bit about this property. So it's in Riverside, like I just said, it's in the historic district. So there's some pros and cons that come along with that. You know, the pros are that really, you know, beautiful properties, streetscapes are really impressive, very, you know, I would say distinct from the rest of you know the city and a lot of these areas. But the con is that you have to abide by the local governing historic districts that you know, put limitations on, on what you can and can't do with the property. So it's nice because it creates a, you know, sort of barrier of entry to newer product. And, you know, you kind of have, once you're in there, you got a good, you know, I would say competitive advantage and being, you know, central to the city and, you know, just having some really beautiful properties. But, you know, the bad part is that when it comes time to replace windows and, or replace a roof, you can't just put, you know, anything, you can't use any type of materials you'd like and do whatever you want. You've got to sort of, you know, abide by, you know, what they set forth as as being acceptable. And and if you wanted to, you know, deter from that, you have to, you know, present and make your case of, you know, whatever you're going to replace certain things with. But that being said, you know, it is for a renter perspective, one of the most desirable areas in the city to rent. You know, it's one of the few really walkable areas of the city. You've got a lot of retail nearby in the Five Points area. You know, a tenant living in this property can get off work and, you know, walk to the bars and restaurants that are nearby. You know, that's really uh, desirable, like I said, because it's just, you know, you don't have that with a lot of other properties in Jacksonville. Jacksonville is very, very spread out land-wise. It's obviously huge and, you know, people are used to driving pretty much everywhere in the city. So that's another thing that I think is really unique about this particular neighborhood and this particular property. This property is has been, you know, heavily renovated. The current owner spent about five hundred thousand dollars in CapEx, which is, you know, pretty significant for a relatively small property of only eleven units. They bought this property a few years ago. And basically, you know, as these units turned, went in and, you know, essentially ripped out everything and put it back together again. So, you know, most of the components were replaced in this property. I won't say 100% of, of every single piece of plumbing, electrical and, and so forth. But the bulk of it was, you know, both properties were tinted as a precautionary measure for termites, which is, you know, one thing locally, I don't know about how that is in your area, but, Interesting. Um, you, you know, here in Florida, that's something that you've got to be cognizant of, you know, some people mitigate that risk with the termite bond, but, you know, you know, termites are just, you know, wood destroying organisms or something you have to be aware of when you're, you're owning property here. So did have those properties tinted, had some foundation work on one of the buildings, you know, pretty much all the HVACs are newer, the roofs are newer. They did really nice finishes with, you know, shaker cabinets, quartz countertops. They refinished some of the hardwood floors and the hardwood floors they didn't, they put in, you know, the luxury vinyl plank flooring. And mm-hmm. so really, really nice product. I mean, they're really you know, targeting that high end of the market and have achieved some pretty strong rents. Um, the most recently signed leases in the one bedroom units that are just over 800 square feet are about 1495 plus utilities. 
in the triplex next door and the you know the two bedrooms are very large 1300 square foot two bedrooms those are currently leased up at 1795 plus utilities and then there's a small studio unit above the garage and they just signed a lease on that for 950 plus utilities so at this point the property is 100% fully occupied and you know it's more of a turnkey product that is going to be for somebody who wants to just you know buy the property and really not you know the time and money has already been spent really to get the property performing really well. And I wouldn't say this as much as a, you know, valued play as it just is a, you know, nice yield play for somebody who wants a really nice property in a good area that is going to be, you know, get really desirable tenants and just be relatively easy to manage. Yeah. The, the benefits of, I mean, it does sound turnkey and there, it does The other thing that it sounds like is that there's not much left to do to increase the value of the property. And that, oh yeah. So that is, so generally like we, as the investors like to come in and do some of the work, not all of the work, because we want to be able to sell it to somebody who wants to be able to do some of the work as well and leave a little upside. So I'm excited to look at the deal, but that was going to be one of the things that, you know, because it does look like a pretty decent deal on paper, but the ability to sell it to someone who, and still have some, I guess, meat on the bone left for them to improve the property is one of the things that we really look for when we're buying a deal. But let's dive into the details of it. So it's 11 units. It's an eightplex and a triplex, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Aplex and a triplex side by side. Okay. So the way that we build out our analysis is we start over here in the target rent analysis. So based on the rent rolls, I was able to essentially pull $9.95 for the studio and then an average of $14.43 for the one bedrooms and then $17.95 for the twos based on the materials we got. And so that gives a total average rent on the 11 units at 1466. And when we are calculating our revenue, so we're just going to kind of look at the profit and loss here. So that from the marketing package, that's kind of how we calculate, you know, how much revenue could be earned for the year. It's not necessarily gross potential rent because obviously there's a difference between what the market is and what the leases are. So the GPR is a little, I guess, a misnomer there. And so I guess the first thing to talk about, you know, when we're calculating what effective gross income is, is vacancy. On a property like this, that's something that with Jacksonville being a very, very, I guess, popular destination and increasing in population growth. I guess I'll ask Stephen first, what, and then Mark, what do you guys think vacancy would be on a property like this? I would say typically, you know, vacancy in an area like this on a property like this is probably going to be sub, you know, 5%. You're probably going to have, you know, pretty sticky tenants, you know, not a ton of turnover and the, you know, units are in high demand. So I think it'd probably be you know, sub 5%. It is, you know, around the holidays right now and and there's some seasonality at play. So I have seen, you know, vacancy tick up recently, you know, whether that's sort of a trend or if that's just 
you know, the seasonality of the market, you know, it's too early to say, but I think that's kind of roughly what, you know, what I see, but Mark probably actually probably has a, you know, much better handle on that than me because he sees a lot more than I do in terms of the, you know, data on the properties he's running. Yeah. So kind of jumping in, I, I think, you know, I think five or 6% is something that's doable, especially in this area. So in Jacksonville, there's, there are two areas that are kind of meet the profile for desirable areas for, I guess, young people or young professionals. That's going to be the beach and Riverside. As Stephen mentioned earlier, Riverside is one of the only walkable neighborhoods. It's also got, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump to downtown. It's got hospitals right around there, financial sector, et cetera, et cetera. So you get kind of a mix of, of young professionals with, you know, if you put it on one of those caricature type of maps, it'd be the hipster neighborhood. <laughs> you get people who they want to get in somewhere, stick and love the neighborhood basically. And so that's who you're going to get there. So as long as you can turn the units quickly, you should get them rented quickly. And when you're, you guys are turning a unit and it like takes longer than it should have because of tenant damage, is that something that's getting billed to tenants or is that you know, something that the, the landlord just eats in Florida. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you have your security deposit and you can utilize that to the best of your ability for things outside of normal wear and tear. But if there's something that goes beyond the normal wear and tear, you're then trying to collect from that tenant. And our means for collection are number one, sending them to a collection agency or number two, going down the road of filing a lawsuit essentially for the damages if they if they don't pay. And then at that point, you probably spent more money and time than you would have on the yeah. just paying the damages and moving forward and getting it re-rented. So it's a little bit of both, but as long as you're doing your proper application screening, as you know, and you know doing the inspections as you need to, you can hopefully head off any major damages before it gets too far down the road. To clarify the question, like let's say that a tenant, like you know, their pet does major damage to hardwood floors and trim. And it takes an extra week to repair that. Are you billing the tenant for an extra week of rent? Or is that the time that it takes to do the extra work? Is that just something that's not recoverable? Yeah. So if you're looking strictly at the time, that's never seen that be recoverable. Okay. So sub 5% is kind of what we're agreeing for this particular area. If it's more of like, you know, an Arlington area, which is going to be more near the college might be a little less desirable area. Are you guys kind of projecting the same type of vacancy or are you going to be, you know, more or closer to 10% in those areas? I'll let Stephen give his expertise based on some of his listings and things like that. But I would say in our experience, those are going to take longer to get a good qualifying applicant in place. And now there's pockets, obviously, in the Arlington area. But just based on that product type, it's probably going to be a lower rent for a similar size unit over there. And so the applicant pool is going to be a little less favorable. You can get it rented, but it's going to you're going to have more showings, more applicants, and it's going to take a bit longer. So I would say you're going to see an uptick in your vacancy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Just anecdotally, a couple of my clients that own over in that area have echoed that. Basically, you know, they get a lot of leasing traffic, a lot of people taking a look, but and a lot of applicants, but you know, it's typically a, 
tougher barrier or tougher hurdle to get somebody that meets that, you know, good credit meets the, you know, three times our incomes, three times the rent and to hit those things. So it is going to take you a little bit longer if your screening criteria is tight to find qualified applicants. So I would factor in a higher amount of vacancy. I don't know if I'd go up to you know, 10% and, you know, and it really depends. I mean, obviously we're, you know, Arlington's a pretty big area. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it really just depends. I mean, there's some, you know, really like desirable pockets of Arlington and there's some, you know, some little bit rougher areas, but I would say somewhere in between that range, you're definitely going to be likely higher than 5%, but, you know, 10% would be high. So maybe, you know, it'd be fair to probably put in, you know, seven or 8% on some of those properties for the vacancy portion. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to concessions or bad debt. I would expect, you know, Riverside area, there's not going to be many concessions. And I would also kind of expect bad debt to be pretty low, just based on. So I wonder if I have put this in as lost a lease for the four and a half percent. I think this just came straight from the marketing package. So it's probably lost a lease over the past year. But would you guys confirm that, you know, bad debt in this area is probably pretty low. And then concessions are also low just based on how the population growth is going. Yeah, I would say that concessions probably are, are pretty low, except for, you know, this time of year, it seems like more and more of the properties, regardless of the areas they're in, are, are offering concessions just because lease traffic is slower because it's, you know, we're, we're right in the middle of the holiday season. So that may, you know, change. I would say typically, yeah, like we're in spring, very likely to see, you know, no concessions offered on these properties and then bad debt, same, you know, if you're doing a good job of screening the tenants in these areas, I think, you know, typically, you know, I don't see a lot of collection issues on these properties It is more rare and very isolated incidents, you know, so I would you know, probably factor in very little, if any, bad debt. But certainly, you know, you're going to have some loss to lease, obviously, with, you know, with long-term tenants and stuff like that. Okay. And so going through the expenses, you know, I feel like we can kind of highlight some of... One of the questions I had was contract services. It's almost $500 a month. Is that for landscaping or... I think there's landscapings in there. I believe there's pest control is in there as well. I think it may just be the combination of those two, which, you know, landscaping, you know, it's two separate properties. So I could see that being anywhere from, you know, I mean, it really depends. I've seen, I mean, those costs seem to be, have increased a lot over the last few years on a lot of these properties. So, you know, anywhere from as low as, you know, $200 a month to as high as, 300, 350, maybe $400, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how, how large the lots are and how intricate the landscaping is. I know they did a really nice, nice landscaping package on both of these properties. So, you know, maybe it's a little, you know, a little bit higher because of that. And then pest control is similar, you know, depending on the level of pest control you're going to have, you know, if you have a termite bond that's baked in there too, those can be expensive sometimes to maintain. But Mark, what do you think about, what are you seeing on landscaping and pest control and stuff like that? Yeah, I think you're right. First of all, on this property, you're you don't have a lot of contracted services. I'm assuming it's you know I'm assuming it's take out your own trash type of deal. There's not a dumpster or anything like that on site. Yeah. That'd be the only one I would think of. And you know, again, just looking at the site, there is some decent landscaping beds and things like that that would kick it up a little more than the typical you know mow and blow type scenario on some rental properties. So I could see that being a little bit higher than a you know some of the other properties of this size. 
And then, yeah, exterior pest control and things like that. I think you're probably pretty close to where you're going to be at the end of the day. Okay. So when it comes to the rest of the expenses, I'm kind of estimating insurance somewhere between 750 a unit to a thousand a unit, depending on just, I would say property age and just, but that's kind of just a variable thing that it is what it is. And so I think that the property owner is currently paying 8,600 for 11 units, which is a little more than 750 a unit. Yeah, they were actually a lot higher than that on this property. And I introduced them to my insurance contact and he had a carrier that came in that was a lot more favorable than what they currently had. But I would say, you know, probably, well, not probably, I mean, the insurance line item is, you know, here in Florida, especially, I know across the country, it's the same, but even here, it's more exacerbated is the fastest growing expense line item by far year over year. So that's something to definitely, you know, be aware of and make sure that you're, you know, if you're growing expenses at three, four, five 5% or whatever that may be, you know, you may want to be growing insurance just to be cautious at, you know, 10 or 15% a year, you know, just to make sure you're not cut off guard. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Yeah, so Steve, do you remember when the insurance was underwritten, when that policy was put in place? This one was literally like last month when they got this this 8600, which was, I mean, it was basically the insurance contact that I introduced them to has this one carrier that just entered the market. And, you know, who knows how, how successful they'll be long term as a, as a company. But right now they are have been extremely favorable in the premiums. I would say probably if they didn't go with this one, the premium on this property, you know, probably would have been closer to $12,000 or something like that, you know, just due to the age and and everything. Yeah. I was anticipating it to be a higher number. That's why I was asking if you were going to tell me that it was put in place at the beginning of the year, I would say, okay, that makes sense. But if there's, you know, if there's a new player coming in when everyone else is pulling out, (laughs) that's a fantastic scenario to have right now. But yeah, I would definitely say you're going to see an increase come renewal time or come yeah, yeah, I agree. I would probably budget for just to be, you know, cautious because that number is so favorable. The current rate, you know, putting in maybe twenty five percent for the next year, maybe fifteen percent for the couple of years after that. Just so, you, like I said, you're not caught off guard in that line items that you know blow up your expense load. Okay. All right. So insurance. I mean, we're basically talking about the two major costs here. So after insurance, there's real estate taxes and. I guess the major finding that I've found is that real estate taxes are by far the most expensive, you know, line item in, you know, when you're buying property in Florida, it's significantly higher than Portland and not something to be overlooked. And let me know if I'm wrong, but the, essentially you multiply the sales price by 1.75% and discount it by like, 80 or 85%. And that's what your property taxes are. 
the um, next year? Well, basically, so the way they're done here in Duval County, and I think probably most of the, I think most of the counties in Florida do a similar thing, but they get generally a sale triggers a reassessment for the year after the purchase. So, you know, if you bought a property right now, then it'll get, you know, if you were closing right now, it would get picked up next year and it would be based on the new sales price. Typically, and I would, you know, always call the appraiser for updated information, but I actually reached out to him a, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, typically that's the assessed value is coming in about 80 to 85% of the sales price. And then that assessed value is then times by the, the current millage rate, which is, I think what you're showing there is pretty close. I don't have the exact rate off the top of my head, but, and then there's an early payment discount of 4%, which I think the majority of people take. So essentially, you know, whatever that calculation is times 0.96, that would be the new property tax amount. And that, what you have in there looks, you know, pretty close. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it is about, you know, 30,000 or so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty close there. The millage rate right now in that area is 17.0303. So 17. Okay. That's what I've got. Okay. So that is still 17% of income, which what, is... What are you guys typically seeing in Portland as a percentage of income? We're doing a deal right now that's getting 60K a month and taxes are 45,000. So 6.2, it's about three oh, wow. times less. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's substantial. Oh, that's interesting. I'm surprised the property taxes are that low. There's a You're law against reassessing here. the property. Oh, really? Yeah. I say that again, Mark. (laughs) I said you're paying for the sunshine down here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So there's a law against reassessment, like even on a sale? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Keep in mind that we pay taxes on everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was so, yeah. So I moved back here from Chicago, Cook County. It was similar. It was like you got kind of dinged everywhere here. I guess that's, we are fortunate that we have relatively low sales tax and, and no income tax. That's really nice, but I can't imagine that, you know, I'd be interested to know, you know, what it is on a percentage of value compared to other states. That'd be interesting chart to see. The other thing I'd throw in there too is, again, I don't know how they do it in Portland, but there is a cap on commercial property. So if it's the same owner, they can only go up 10% a year unless there's a, you know, a major renovation permit pulled, something that like a sale would trigger a reassessment. On the flip side though, if values go down because of a dip in the market or something like that, you can actually contest the taxes, get in front of the tax collector and have it reassessed to a lower value, which would then reset. So that's a savings that would carry forward again for years because they can't go up more than that 10% a year. So we take a look at our property taxes on an annual basis to see if there's any arguments for, for a reduction. So that's something to keep in mind there. But if you're Pro forma is for a favorable market of anywhere up to 10% a year in property value increases. I would factor that into future year pro formas and increase. Yeah. Yep. Same deal in Portland, but it's 3% on the assessed value. They can only increase the assessed value by 3% a year. So that might be the difference. <laughs> and then, yeah, we can do appeals as well. Got to get those in in the next two weeks. Otherwise, you'll miss the boat. All right. So management, I mean, management is just going to be a percentage of revenue, which is pretty standard. Mark, like what would be a standard rate that you guys would charge on 
two buildings, eight and like in, in this really nice area. Yeah. I mean, 11 units for a new client. I'm probably actually around 8%, you know, plus leasing fees and renewal fees and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Turnover. We, yeah, there's no turnover in here. Generally I'll underwrite it at like 150 bucks a unit just because generally it costs a little bit and you're probably going to see one or two turnovers a year at a property like this. Chris, just to clarify real quick, the 8% that you put in was for repairs and maintenance. Oh, there we go. Glad there's someone in here to keep them in line. Absolutely. My goodness. Well, cool. So then, yeah, let's talk about repairs and maintenance. So a property like this, you know, Stephen, you were chatting about how there's been significant, you know, CapEx invested into this property. And so I feel like this is an area where, you know, on a deal like this, that can get massaged. First, the rules of thumb. What what do you kind of expect for, you know, start like now that all the work's been done, what do you think maintenance would look like per unit on a deal like this? Well, I mean, since they are, you know, pretty much all newer appliances, you shouldn't have a lot of appliance issues. Same with HVACs, same with, you know, the roof. So I would say, you know, it should be lower because of a lot of those things. However, it also is, you know, an older property. So there's probably some offsetting, you know, things in there where, you know, due to the age of the property, I would say, you know, typically if I were underwriting a deal, I'd have that number a little bit you know, larger than I would, you know, a newer age of construction. But like I said, that's kind of, you know, wiped out by the fact that a lot of these, you know, things have been replaced. So, you know, typically, you know, you could use as low as, you know, $500 per unit per year on, you know, if you think that everything's really been done and stuff's newer and you shouldn't have a lot of stuff, or you could use, you know, it's an older property that, Maybe there hasn't been a lot, significant amount of capex work done, and you're going to have recurring stuff along the way. You can have it as high as eight fifty, a thousand per unit per year. Mm-hmm. I would, I would probably pick something in the middle and use about seven hundred and fifty dollars a unit. I think is probably a pretty good, you know, rough estimate, you know, for a property like this. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, so I mean. Look, obviously, Stephen knows the property better than I do. When I look at it from a location standpoint and an age standpoint, those are the two things that I pick up on right away. It's an older building, so I'm sure they fixed everything they saw, but what didn't they see, what hasn't happened yet to the building, so on and so forth, that's kind of an unknown. Obviously, you can do your due diligence as best as possible going into it, but it is an older building. The other thing is it is close to the river over there in Riverside. That's right down the street from the St. John's River. We've seen hurricanes and tropical storms and everything year after year. That's most likely going to eventually you'll have some shingles blow off or you'll have, you know, something along those lines happen due to either storm surges, high winds, so on and so forth. And with the insurance market, the way it is, if it's something, you know, well below your deductible or something like that, you're not going to want to file that claim to deal with it. So you're probably going to take that hit yourself. So that's the only thing that I see other than the age that I would be a little concerned about is you're right on the water there, which again, from a marketing standpoint and a rental standpoint, it's fantastic, but you may suffer some storms and things like that, that 
you would want to have something in there for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we can up that to a thousand. Maybe 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 we'll just yeah press that a little bit more, just you know, out of caution. Yeah. Okay. Which is about what the property was being run at previously, and I'm sure when you guys did the analysis, the capex got pulled out as capital improvements. So then you've got water and sewer. Water and sewer is just kind of, it's going to gradually increase. I don't think we need to talk too much about that. And then replacement reserves, that's just something that the lender needs. So all in all, based on the, you know, the marketing package, the expense ratio is 42%. And like, how do you guys feel about this being a rule of thumb, you know, for a property kind of like this? in an area like this? I think it's pretty close. I mean, that's typically what I use for these smaller properties. If I'm just doing a quick, you know, analysis, I usually use, you know, 40, I take, you know, 45% of the potential gross, assuming that 5% is vacancy and 40% is expenses. So, you know, you're going to net around, you know, 55%. That's usually kind of what I'll use to just do some quick back of the napkin math. But, you know, once again, like I said, Mark probably, you know, sees, you know, way more, you know, than I do is closer to it. So he probably has a better you know, handle on what he you know, thinks that number should be. I don't disagree with you. I don't have a problem with that number. Actually, I kind of got stuck and I was looking back at something else on the utilities before you guys jumped into that. Is that the house meter stuff on there, Stephen, or is that, are they individually metered or how how does that work? Yeah, yeah. That's the house meter, okay. water and sewer, which I think, what is that? work out to be let's see 30 10 270 a unit let me yeah that actually looks a little low i'm surprised that it's that low i think usually i see probably closer to like the rule of thumb that i've kind of calculated is around 488 per unit 488 which should be Kind of think of on a monthly basis. You don't have those hot summer days when we got to keep our grass green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if it's just water and sewer, and it's for the for the outside, which is again just the outside meters. That's I mean, your summer months you can get a few hundred bucks a month. Oh yeah, yeah. I think this particular property is unique because there's not a very big. Actually, there's almost no yard at all, except for the very little small strip in the front, the sides, I know there's gravel and then there's like sort of like a dirt lot in the back for the parking in the rear. But Mark's right. If you were having a property that had a larger lawn, yeah, to keep the grass from really just drying out and looking burnt in the summer, you really got to give it a pretty significant amount of water. So that's definitely something to keep in mind here. I guess I'll update that to our rule of thumb to 500 a unit. So with the updated taxes and then, you know, some small changes, actually lower property management fees, because it seemed like there was a significant amount of turnover. Our version has around 48% of expenses to the kind of the like as is rents multiplied by 12 with a little bit of vacancy and a little bit of bad debt in the deal. So that comes out to a 94,000 net operating income. Steven, is that kind of like, that probably is a little bit lower than what you came up with, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a little bit, I mean, 
like I said, those expense numbers are probably a little bit more conservative than what I used. And I also, you know, some of that lost to lease, you're going to, you know, remediate relatively quickly on the income side. Yeah, because I have my projected income at closer to the 223 that you're showing. So yeah, I think that, you know, my NOI was a, a little bit higher taking into account that sort of increased number. I'm assuming that, you know, when spring comes, you're pushing all those rents closer to a little bit or more so, in line with market, but oh, good. Yeah. So the market rents that we're projecting would be 1100 for the studio, 1700 for the ones and 2000 for the twos. And so that gets us to that 223 number. The problem is, is that, you know, acquiring the property, their tenants are on leases and raising up the rents. I mean, at least in Portland, there's rent control. We can't even raise rents like from an average of 1466 to 1695. Like we can only raise 10%. So we could potentially raise from 1466 to about 15, well, 1600. Yeah, 1600. So we could get pretty close with that one 10% increase, but- We don't have any problem here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, acquiring a new property, like is that, I guess, common practice to just raise rents to market, you know? I mean, I think any owner, and it really depends on your business plan. You know, I talk about this, you know, with people a lot, you know, if you're, I think if you're- approaching like a sale or refinance sometime, you know, in the next 12 months, then you want to be a little bit more strategic about, you know, showing a lender or a potential buyer that you've been able, you know, kind of proving out where market rents are and maybe you're sacrificing cash flow by, you know, just getting the rent roll to a certain place, just, you know, to have that the effect you want on a sale or refinance. But I think Typically, if that's not the case, then obviously you're probably looking to maximize cash flow and you're kind of being cognizant of where the market is and where you can take rent without causing you know too much turnover in, in your property. But different people have different methodologies. Some people want to get the rent roll to, you know, as close to market as they can as quickly as possible by whatever means possible. And some people would rather you know, know that turnover is expensive because of the repair costs and the amount of lost rent. And because of that, they, they sort of massage that over time. And it's really just a matter of, I guess, personal preference and how you like to operate your properties. Yeah. I mean, on my end, on a property like this, it looks like they've done a great job on the rehab and it's, they're nice looking units. You know, they got the hardwood floors. I got everything that someone who wants to be in Riverside is looking for. I'm taking advantage of that. I'm going in and raising the rents right away. That being said, obviously, you do have to be strategic about it. If you've got four leases all coming up in the same month, you may not want to be, you know, testing the waters on all four leases on an 11 unit building all at once. So, you know, I think you got to look at how the renewals lay out. I'd start with the first renewal coming up and pushing the market. And if I need to get someone new in, just kind of setting that tone and I'm going to get max rent as quickly as I can. And with, in your experience in that area, like, are you seeing one bedrooms garner 1700 in this market? I would say this property is definitely pushing the only, like there's a property nearby, actually it's a stone's throw away. That's a new construction property where the one bedrooms, you know, they're going out at $2,000 a month, but it's different. It's a brand new construction, you know, amenity rich, the nature of the property is different. So 
this property is unique in that, you know, a lot of the one bedrooms probably are renting for a little bit lower in this surrounding area, maybe, you know, 1295, 1395, you know, just a touch lower, but they're also probably not as nice. And then, like I said, you've got, you know, brand new construction property that's just about a hundred yards away where they're getting, you know, $2,000. And so this property is going to probably sit somewhere right in between there. You know, somebody who prefers maybe a smaller building and does need all the bells and whistles of a new, you know, a newer building with a lot of amenities, but they also want, you know, nice finishes. They want to really, you know, they want new appliances and they want, you know, nice flooring and all of that. So I think that, you know, the rent's definitely achievable. It's, like I said, it's hard to say right now because seasonality is definitely taking effect, but I think come spring, you know, I think those are, are reasonable to be hit based on, you know, the location and the level of finishes of the units. So yeah, with your strategy, Mark, I think that we can boost the year one projections. And so when we're looking at buying a deal like this, we have to figure out, you know, what the debt coverage ratio is going to be to figure out how much, you know, the property is listed for 2.25 million. And we need to figure out what's going to cover the debt because that kind of determines how big a loan we can get. So at a 5% loan, I don't think we can get a 5% loan right now. I think we've got to get a 5.5% loan. So it looks like that's going to be a little more than 35% down. So looking like 37. Yeah. So down payment is going to be roughly 830,000. You can get a loan for about 1.425 million, which is ideal. You want to get a over a million dollar loan because that'll get you into the Freddie Mac small balance program, which is important. And then I'm assuming there's just going to be some sort of capex needed. Just and at, I don't know, 175 might be a little high. So let's drop that down to 50,000 because it need a little bit of funds to fund the operating account. Yeah. And looking at this, if we massage the P&L a little bit, change that back down to three. So we're assuming a 3% rent escalator. Actually, let's bump this one up to maybe 5% this year. Okay. And I feel like year three getting average rents to 1780 seems reasonable. So basically, this is how we look at a deal now that we've got the PL kind of dialed in and we've figured out how big a loan we can get. And it's all based on the PL and how much net income there is. And so we're basing this off of kind of year one, which is getting rents up a little bit higher at 5% vacancy, 2% bad debt. And it's looking closer to a $120,000 NOI. And so when we look at that, we can take a peek at the average return and the debt coverage ratio. So looking at a sale at five years, you know, essentially this is going to be a cash on cash deal and the average return is going to be roughly 7% cash on cash. And that's just based off the 37% down payment plus 50K. And if we look at the exit, which also has a big impact on the return, assuming, and here's an interesting question. So the exit value, so kind of roughly as is numbers, the cap rate, we're calculating the cap rate to be about four and a half percent. 
Steven, like, is that kind of in line with what you're thinking? I mean, if it was a year ago, I would agree with that. I think since interest rates have started increasing so rapidly over the last year, that that's, you know, probably way too aggressive right now. But everything's changing a lot. I mean, over the last, you know, 30 to 60 days, you know, the 10-year treasury has, you know, come down by like 75 basis points or so. So, I mean, you know, rates, I was seeing rates, sheets from lenders with on commercial loans with rates in the, you know, the mid sixes. And now I'm seeing rates back in the, you know, five, six, five, seven, five, eight, which is, you know, at least better, but it's, you know, it's not the three and a half percent rates we were seeing, you know, a year, 18 months ago. So mm-hmm. honestly, trying to pin down a market cap right now is probably one of the most challenging things about doing underwriting a syndication deal, because there's so much uncertainty around where rates are headed that, you know, trying to figure out what a market cap rate is and you know, three, four, five years from now is really challenging. I certainly think that using four and a half percent would be, you know, if somebody put like a deal in front of me that they were raising money for and they had a four and a half percent exit cap, I think that's way too aggressive, you know, so but I, I think we're estimating an exit cap at five and a half percent. I think that's fair. I think that's a good number to use. I mean, and this is like I said, one of the nice areas of the city deals typically trade, you know, lower end of cap rates that they would you know, for the entire you know city. And, you know, it was not unusual for a couple of years to see cap rates, you know, sub 5%. So I think using, you know, 5.5% rate, assuming that interest rates kind of normalize and over the next couple of years, I think that's a good defensible number to use. Yeah. And if we pushed the sale out farther, I think you could get a little more aggressive on the cap rate just because you'd be able to time it a little bit. But since this would be, you know, something disposed within five years, I think that we would have to get pretty conservative. So with that 5.5% cap rate, you know, based on the net income at sale, you know, really only fetches, you know, about a $500,000 gain from the current purchase, which over five years is, it makes it, you know, more of a cash flow deal. Like you're not really seeing if you're assuming a 5.5% cap rate, you're really not assuming much appreciation. And so that is kind of why this particular deal, you know, has a little bit lower returns, especially when it comes to the IRR. And so it takes a certain type of investor. And the other thing that about this deal that makes it a little tougher for us to do is that all of the work has already been done and there's no there's nothing really left for someone who purchases the property to improve because the rents are you know near the top of the market so there's not really any value add that is left on it and so we just kind of look for different assets but I do love looking at deals like these and hammering through the expenses. And I, I feel like we did a really good job underwriting this with the, your guys' help. And so I appreciate you guys taking the time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me on and love to do it again sometime on a different deal. Yeah, this is not probably not your, you know, the best deal to look at from the lens of a value add syndication deal. 
because it's obviously more of a, you know, core turnkey deal for somebody to just, you know, sort of buy and collect income without really doing a lot of work, but love to hop back on sometime and work through more of a value add type project with you. This property held for, you know, 10 or 15 years, like through a full market cycle, because I would say Jack's, you know, like multifamily itself has peaked, you know, and now there's going to be a little bit of a cycle where, you know, interest rates aren't great, you know, other asset classes become way more popular and, but then eventually multifamily will, you know, reemerge as the new hot asset to purchase. And then at that point, cap rates will compress and an asset like this will fetch, you know, a premium. And it's just a question of, you know, are you willing to wait for that 10 or 15 year cycle to happen? Yeah, I'd agree with both of you guys. I mean, this is, there are investors in town who look for these smaller multifamily deals and only want to buy in Riverside or only want to buy in San Marco. And they're not the value add people. They just want to add to their portfolio or someone looking for a quick 1031. That's the type of buyer I see for this deal. And there are people out there looking for this type of deal, but you're right. It doesn't have the work built into it like investors who are are value add focused are looking for. He did it up front and I think he did a good job with it, but it's not something that's going to fit into your type of portfolio. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Stephen. This is our first rundown on like going through this syndicated deal analyzer. And I really think that going through it with the listing broker and our property manager has been, you know, really, really helpful for us. So thank you guys so much. No problem. Thank you guys. Thanks, Trent. Yep. Have a good one. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.